you uh, has many uh, series to it. There's actually uh, four episodes you could break it into in which there are four episodes of Jesus having very uh, long and uh, detailed discourses. And then in between all these discourses is a beautiful um, balance, a pattern, I think, for our life, is that Jesus was so busy about speaking such wonderful words of wisdom, and then he would immediately go to be doing wonderful things with his hands. And then he would go back to being able to say wonderful things, and then doing wonderful things. There was a, a harmony in his life that, that I think we would all love to emulate, that we would be sayers and doers of the will of God. Um, that we wouldn't have to find some type of false dichotomy or hypocrisy in our, in our life. And Jesus shows us that beautifully. What we have here uh, in this sermon series entitled, Who Is He? Uh, is actually a series of uh, episodes we'll find um, as we're not really looking at what Jesus uh, is saying so much. There's not this very long discourse on what we're looking at now, but more of what he's doing. Um, so he's back to doing things again. And uh, he's doing things uh, for the purpose to answer that question. Because, as we'll see, everyone who is coming in contact with him is um, looking how to answer that question for themselves. Who is he? Uh, we saw, um, most recently, his encounter returning home. Uh, we know how it is when uh, someone's real close to you. Uh, Jesus comes back home to where everyone knows him. Uh, he had a real big, uh, successful uh, ministry in, around Galilee, and uh, people were talking about him. And then he came back home and said, like, well, who do you think you are? You're big, big shot doing miracles, you know. Um, and they rejected him. They were offended by him. Um, uh, and so they didn't answer the question very well, who is he? Uh, here we're saying that Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord of glory. That he is the Lord, and there's really no other word for it except glory. The same Jesus of Nazareth, who had sandals on his feet and dirt under his fingernails, is the Lord of glory. And through a discursive process, of a slow meditation, he is gradually beginning to reveal himself to be that throughout this gospel. But Jesus appears, and even to this very day, this very moment, Jesus appears very differently to different people. The answer to the question is then, who is he? Or why does he look so different to different people? We find that here today in Matthew 14. It is this moment in which Jesus had um, left his home in Nazareth in which he was marginally rejected. Uh, we're told that uh, he could do no miracles there uh, because they would not believe upon him. And so it left somewhat uneventfully, as opposed to his other places he went, with very little things to do. The beginning of the chapter, it says this. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work with him. 
So who is he? Don't know, but Jesus is doing many mighty things, and he is becoming very, very famous. For Herod had seized him and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, uh, his brother Philip's wife. So Herod, we're going to hear the story now of how Herod uh, uh, killed John the Baptist. And while he's reasoning, who is Jesus? Oh, he's like John. Maybe he's John resurrected. That's how Herod is beginning to answer the question, who is he? For he bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, uh, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oath and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on the platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And the disciples came and took John, uh, took the body and buried him. And then they went and told Jesus. And so they went to Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowd away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves to eat. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and left over. And those who were about, who, and those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides the women and the children. So you have here this um, interaction between Jesus uh, and this large group of people, but it's so closely related to something that doesn't seem so closely related, which is uh, John the Baptist and his ministry, the ending of his ministry, the ending of his life. We know that uh, John was imprisoned particularly because uh, he was preaching um, against a very powerful man named Herod. Uh, and uh, the way uh, you can make sense of all the Herods in the Bible is you just have to remember uh, the famous boxer uh, George Foreman, uh, who had uh, five sons by multiple women, and all their names were George Foreman. Um, and if you understand that, then you understand the Herods in the Bible. 
Um, there's many Herods. So just to clarify there, there's uh, the Herod uh, in which um, we speak about is not the same one when Jesus was born. Um, the father, this man here we read about is Herod Antipas. Uh, his father was named Herod uh, the Great or Herod the King. Uh, Herod Antipas never had the title king. Uh, he was a tetrarch, which means a, uh, a ruler of four small regions. Um, but that's not to be confused with Herod uh, Philip, who is the brother of Herod the Tetrarch, who are both sons of Herod the Great. And they're all called Herod. Um, so someone asked George Foreman, why did you name all your sons uh, George Foreman? And he said, well, I want them to ha all have something in common with each other. Uh, so uh, even though this family can't seem to get along and they're apparently um, uh, fighting over the same wife, at least they can all get along in their names. But just to add a little confusion, what's the wife's name? Herodias. So, it's a family thing. Um, and so, that is the fight. Uh, Herodias uh, comes to Herod Antipas, uh, and they are married, which is a divorce to Herod to Philip. And John says, that's not right. Don't do that. Now, he's not actually a pure-blood Jew. Just to give the context, the reason that is not just offensive because you talk to someone in high power and said it's not right, which is a point for the church today. The church should be prophesying against the state for all of its wickedness. I mean, it could result in people being persecuted, but then again, that is biblical. Either way, he said that particularly um, because the uprising is all of these Herods aren't actually really Jewish kings. Usually when Rome would come in to occupy a land, they would put uh, sub-kings, tetrarchs, in place of that region, but at least those in that region would try to have the same ethnicity so that the people wouldn't be so offended or put off by having someone like that rule over them. The tension is an ethnic thing in which if it's pushed upon Herod that we already know you're not truly a Jewish person and that you're disrespecting the Torah, which says that this whole divorce thing and swapping wives is bad. It's another log on the fire for a potential riot and uprising. And so not only is it personally offensive, you might say, for Herod to be publicly charged for being a fool, but it's um, violently dangerous to his throne and he understands that he could be uh, taken away by a revolt. So he wants to put John to death, we're told, but he doesn't because he's afraid of the people. Now, here's an excuse to put him to death. This party. There is a, there is a uh, party in which Herodias' uh, daughter dances and she pleases Herod and all his guests were told in Mark and other places in the Gospels that the banquet included all the nobles, uh, the military commanders, and all the leaders. All of the big shots, all of the people that work within his uh, administration, people that he needs to save face with in order to be their leader. Um, he was probably drunk and said, uh, he asked, uh, whatever you want, up to half of my kingdom. And it was the perfect time. Uh, she goes to her mother. Her mother says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Um, and Herodias is the one who's personally offended by John's preaching, of course. Um, and she returns, 
And because of his dinner guests, because of saving face in that context, though he doesn't necessarily want to do this because he doesn't know if doing this will cause a great riot, um, because he knows everybody likes John, and if I unjustly uh, kill him, this could go very badly for me, but now I've been put into an ethical dilemma in which all of my uh, dignitaries and military commanders are watching me if I will be true to my vow or I will look like a fool two times over. And so he decides to put John uh, to death. And his, uh, in the middle of the party, of course, the, the, the language is, she said, here, here, I want John, the head of John the Baptist uh, on a platter. I want his head on a platter here. That is, it has to happen now in the context of this party while all the pressure is upon Herod. We can't let, let you sober up tomorrow and let everyone forget about what you just said. So in the middle of that party, he goes down, John is decapitated, and the, 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 the macabre, the grotesqueness of it all is that his head is on a platter where you put food in a party where everyone's eating and drinking. It's almost cannibalistic. It has a really weird tone to it. In the middle of that party, here is on a platter his head. She takes the head, gives it to her mother. It's not necessarily a family party you want to go to. Should have had your warning signs when they all called themselves Herod. Well, John's disciples decided uh, that they had to at least give his body a proper burial. And then they went and told Jesus. And that transitions. As returning to Jesus, when Jesus hears about this, he departs. He knows it's not the time. And if he's in this location, most likely, there will be some type of violence upon him. We're not told where he goes, but he goes across the Sea of Galilee, which is really just a very large lake. And he probably went northeast, because that was outside of the region, of this very small Tetrarch region that he controlled. He probably went over to, actually, the irony of the whole story is, the place where his brother Philip ruled. The one who he took the wife off of. So he's over there in the wilderness, we're told. But as he gets in the boat and he's going, great crowds gather. They're following, we're told, on foot. He gets to the other side of the lake, and there are at least 5,000 men. Aside from women and children. The numbering of the men is interesting. But 5,000, it doesn't take too long to get from one side of the lake to the other. Whether he waded water out there on the boat for some time, this is remarkable. We just can't, sometimes you read the story without knowing the geography and the historical context. He got off the boat and there was an army in front of him. John the Baptist was a big deal. He was unjustly condemned and killed. Evidently, there had to have been some type of network, an ancient phone chain, in a, in a sense, in which it's a door-to-door, door-to-door, through all the towns and villages, did you hear that John has been beheaded? And Jesus is traveling north. John has been beheaded, and Jesus is traveling north. 
John has been beheaded, and Jesus traveling north. Exponentially, more people telling more people, telling more people, and they arrive. Jesus gets off the boat, and he saw this great crowd. And when most people would think, now is the time to fix this wrong. Now is the time to fight this fight. We're told that he had compassion. He had compassion upon them. And he healed the sick. And he taught them. Mark says, he had compassion. For he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. He taught them many, many things. All the way into the evening. And he went to send them away. Disciples said, let them go into the village to buy food. And he said, no, you. Doesn't make sense. You give them something to eat. Jesus doesn't even say, I will give them something to eat. No, you do it. Can he be faulted for not thinking, well, yeah, you probably want to go down, uh, down to, you know, get some McDonald's or Chick-fil-A maybe. Chick-fil-A, you know, it's a Christian sandwich. Let's all get them down there because we don't have anything here. Like he's not faulted, you know, if anything, at least Chick-fil-A. No, you feed them. Well, I have five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, now everyone, sit down. Groups of fifties, groups of hundred. When Israel came out of Egypt into the wilderness, they were numbered by the men, and they were numbered in military order. Fifties and hundreds. They were given marching orders by tribes so they could maintain rank as they walked through the wilderness in case they would be attacked by enemies. There's echoes there, you see. All these men, they're all angry. John's been killed. And Jesus seems to sit them down, not to stand them up for marching, but to sit them down almost in a military order of 50s and 100s. And this is it. This is the verse. Verse 19. He looked up. I love this verse. He looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. I've thought about that verse a lot this week. That's beautiful. None of us can do that. I wish I could do that. We all struggle. We all have trials in this life. Particularly in this point in the gospel. You have him looking up. He doesn't talk to them. He talks to his father. And he just says a blessing over the meal. And they all ate till they couldn't eat anymore. See, there's two feasts here. There's the feast of Herod and the feast of Jesus. Herod is a decadent party of drinking and licentiousness. And it ends in a decapitation. Jesus is this compassionate, telling them to all sit down and recline. I'm going to serve you. Sit in your fifties and your hundreds. And he teaches them and he heals them. And they all eat a wholesome meal to their satisfaction. They can't eat anymore. There's 12 baskets of bread left over. Herod's party ends with a platter and a head. And Jesus' party ends with 12 baskets of bread. 
They're put right next to each other. If you're reading somewhat slowly, you have to pause and draw the analogy. Look at this. John 6 says this about when he fed the 5,000. After they had eaten, when the people saw this great sign that he multiplied the bread, it just kept coming. The, 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 the action, the instrument by which he did it was this, breaking. We're told in the text he just broke. Just kept breaking. A few loaves of bread, five loaves of bread, just break them. Just keep breaking them. Just break them again. Break them again. Break them again. But it does, see, it doesn't say that he multiplied the bread. He actually says he divided the bread. So, I'm sure in our modern age, we with molecular science could probably break five loaves of bread into 5,000 plus pieces. But at the end of that, not everybody's full. The beautiful language, the inference is, by division, there's multiplication. But the text doesn't say he multiplied the bread. He divided the bread. And everyone's just happy about it. And they're so happy. They have so much more they can't even eat. I mean, it makes sense in mathematics. The, the infinity that you could always keep breaking more and more and more and more and more and more of something ad infinitum. But in the physical world, when you actually have to fill your stomach with bread, that doesn't make sense. It only makes sense on a spreadsheet in the formal world. This is the beauty of our Lord. It's an image. Well, we're told that they saw this sign, and they said this in John 6 after he fed everybody. This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And they were about to come and make him king by force. That's what John 6 says. They were about to come and lay hold of him and make him their king. And this is again like every point in the Gospels where you naturally would intuit, now it makes sense. Now it's going to happen. Now the Messiah is going to get his recognition. We are saying Jesus is the king of glory. And now someone's finally getting it. Yeah, you're right. Grab him. Make him king. He's the king of glory. You're right. You saw it. And then we're told Jesus dismissed them. And he evaded them. He dismissed them and he ran away. And he went up on top of a mountain to pray. By himself. Again. Now this is the beautiful connection. As you read through the gospels. You find this again and again and again and again. And then if you lace them all together. You find a mosaic. A picture. All the pieces fit. We're like. There it is. This is the reason. See. Everything Jesus is doing. Doesn't seem to make sense. With what we're told about him. This great prophet that he is. Let's go back to that for a moment to say. When they say, this is the prophet, we have to understand what they meant by that. Nobody was like Moses. Nobody. Not even David. There is nobody in scripture that was like Moses. This guy was at another level. He was so incredibly graciously blessed by God. Everything that he had was unique to him alone. 
He brought through all the plagues of Egypt. He parted the waters of the sea. He brought down manna from heaven. Does that sound familiar? All this manna from heaven, he fed them in a desolate place. That's where Jesus is at right now. In the wilderness where there's no food. There is no Chick-fil-A. But all through the wilderness, he's dropping bread on them every day for 40 years. And he leads them to a mountain. And on that mountain, unlike any other moment in all of Scripture, the heaviest, the most weightiest glory of God descended upon the created order in which the heavens and the mountain quaked, it smoked, it burnt. It was, creation was cracking under the glory of God on that mountain. And Moses was the guy that took them there. No one ever was able to do that. They stood at that mountain and they said, Moses, you speak to us, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. If I could infer anything from what I'm seeing on this mountain, I would like to walk the other way. This glory is too heavy. He is too mighty. Whoever this Yahweh is you speak of, I do not want to come close to him. Moses, you go for us. And Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, 15, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me. And you shall listen to him. And he said, just as you desired the Lord at the mountain, where you said, let not us hear the voice of the Lord or see his great fire lest we die. (laughs) Do Do you catch the irony of what he just said? I know you wanted me to be the middleman because you don't want to go up that great mountain to see the one true God in all his glory. Well, I'm going to go now. My ministry is over. And the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 is, but the Lord will send someone like me. He'll send someone like me as the way you desired God at the mountain, which was what? They didn't desire him. That's the irony of what he just said. The Lord will send someone like me as you desired him at the mountain in which you wanted to not hear his voice or see his fire. There will be another one to come. And then you'd think, okay, well the one after Moses is Joshua. But then if you keep reading in Deuteronomy 34, we're told as Joshua was replacing Moses, it says, no one has arisen like the prophet Moses Not even Joshua, whom the Lord knew face to face. The Hebrew says mouth to mouth. This man spoke with God. No one has ever spoken to God like Moses spoke with God. There's been none like him with all the signs and the wonders and the great deeds of power. Deuteronomy ends the book that way. To leave it open to say, no one has come. So John the Baptist is this great leader. He is a great prophet. All these people love him. And he's been killed. The tensions are very high. In almost an instant, 5,000 men assemble. They want to make him king and take him by force. And he sends them away 
Why? The reason is, Jesus is the Lord of glory. Connecting this to an end. Connect these dots. Jesus is the Lord of glory. God's glory is not principally something to give us fear. Not principally something to scare us. The reason they didn't like the mountain is because they're sinners. God's original glory to knowing him in all of his goodness. There is a goodness to God's glory. And we interpret it as evil. They looked at the mountain and said, oh my, that is, that is petrifying. I do not want to go near the one true and living God. He, Hebrew says it's a, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, not a God of your idol and your own machinations, of your imagination or philosophy, a God that really can't do anything to you, but the living God, the God who actually made you, well that's scary. That's petrifying. But it's only scary because we are sinners. It is the desire in our heart to not have God. It was the desire of the people to not go near the mountain. But someone did. Everyone went away. Down at the bottom of the mountain, looking up. But Moses went into the mountain and up the mountain. He actually did go into the mountain. And he particularly went in there for this. When he went up and in, he approached the one true and living God and he said these words. Show me your glory. The very thing they didn't want. And God's response was, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. Everything they didn't think was in there. It was not good for them to go into the mountain. But Moses went into the mountain and found that there was remarkable goodness in the glory of God. The principal feature when Moses says, I want to see your glory. God says, I will show you my goodness. I am good. I am not like you. I am really good. Oh, that's, that's amazing. That explains all the gospels. That there is a goodness to the glory of God that we can not see because of our sinful desires. It is phenomenologically impossible for us to apprehend the goodness of the glory of God. Psalm 18, 2 Samuel 22. To the righteous you show yourself righteous. To the wicked you show yourself crooked. Who are you? That's what you'll see in the mirror. God is all. He is dark. He is light. To those who are wicked, he appears frightfully wickedly evil, almost as if he could kill you. But if you're righteous, he is beautiful and good. The problem is, can we get into that mountain or must we always be afraid of the clouds and the fire and the thunder from the outside? Or can we enter into the goodness of the glory of God? If you understand that, everything Jesus is doing makes sense.
Everything else falls into place. To know the goodness of the glory of God. Jesus could demonstrate himself with great acts of power. There is, in 2019, uh, a way of hurricanes go, maybe not the most famous one, um, like Katrina, but there was a very significant hurricane that came through uh, the south. Dorian uh, was the name of the hurricane. There was an um, interview on uh, which uh, one of the lieutenants uh, was uh, questioned because his uh, job is to research these things. And the way he does that is no more than simply just flying straight to the center of it. Person asked, isn't that pretty dangerous? Aren't you scared? A little bit, he said. But he said this, actually, it's not that bad. He said in his experience, man's name, lieutenant was looking with Sean Cross. And he said, I've been doing this for years. And I've looked at hurricanes, tornadoes, researched them, my professional career. I would rather fly into a hurricane up high than walk down below any time, he says. Because when you're down below, underneath, when all that air and pressure and wind is causing all that tumultuous circumstance, those floodwaters will kill you. The objects and the projectiles that are flying through the air will kill you. That is how you die from a hurricane. But if you're up high and you ascend into it, and you fly into it, then you're in the eye. Four mile diameter, usually, of relative peace and tranquility. Goodness, you see. This is real outside the mountain, real down low looking up to the mountain. It's scary. Don't want to go up there. Go up and in. You went into the eye of the storm. But what is it? The glory of the goodness of God. The problem is that his goodness is our badness. That's the problem. And so here we find Jesus. Here we find Jesus wanting us to, sh to show us the glory of God, but not just the glory of God. The goodness of the glory of God. So, when asked to heal, he doesn't heal. When asked to be king, he denies being king. When wanting to have bread, he doesn't make bread. Think of the Jesus we know from the scriptures. We know when he went to Nazareth, those did not believe in him. And we're told he could do, Matthew 13, 58, no miracle there because of their unbelief. It was not the power that was the problem. It was his purpose that was the problem. Jesus could have done a miracle. And they all would have said, interesting. Let me examine that for 200 years and then probably say that you're not the Messiah. Because the heart is the heart of the matter. They can't see the good of, goodness of the glory of God because they're not good. And so Jesus doesn't demonstrate his glory through miracles. Jesus refused to be king. He is the Lord of glory. And these men are coming to say, we want you to be king. And he says, no, thank you very much. Why? Because they don't know what it means that he's king. They want him to go chop off Herod's head like Herod chopped off John the Baptist's head. And Jesus is simply saying, I am not a footnote to just one more page of human history of other kings trying to kill other kings. 
This is not just one more rebellion of a political riot, of a new transition, of a new kingdom. I'm here to change your heart so that you will see the goodness of the glory of God. And so even though he will be king of the whole world, now is not the time. He has work to do on the cross. And even here, at the beginning of the gospel, Jesus is fasting in the wilderness for 40 days, as Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus has not eaten. He is hungry. Satan approaches him, tempts him, and says, command these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God, that is. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Satan left him. Now, what is this we have here, though? He could miraculously make bread any time he wants. And he is hungry. But he finds this crowd. Compassion goes out from him. Now is the time to make miraculous bread. Do you see? It's all about demonstrating that he is Good. If he makes bread with no one else around, by himself, in the wilderness, just to satisfy himself, how does that work in his mission as the Messiah? The one who is the suffering servant who saves, not the self-serving servant who makes bread for himself. He has experienced hunger. Have you ever had a desire in this life in which you know that God has the power to answer your prayer, but he does not have the desire or the will to answer your prayer? Almost every prayer you've ever prayed that has not been answered falls into that category. God could do it because he can do all things, but he won't do it. Do you realize that Jesus himself had the same experience as he himself, God, possessing all power and being quite hungry, to remind you, said, no, I will not make bread. Because it's all about showing the goodness of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But he has to take his humanity and we are so depraved and so sinful. And our desires are so contrary to his goodness and holiness that he has to take his own human flesh and put it on the cross. Die and give you a new life. Give you a new orientation to break open the barrier so that the Holy Spirit may fill us and change us. And so that we would be righteous so that he might present himself as righteous. That we might be good so that he might present himself as being good. So that we might actually be able to enter in to that glory cloud without dying or being afraid. But being invited in by the goodness of the glory of God to behold the face of the glory of God forever. And this is our heaven. This is what it means to to be saved, to behold the goodness of the glory of God. But only good things could ever come so close. So no, he won't be the king. No, he won't make his own bread. He, do you see the connection? This man's body was put on a platter. Jesus broke the bread and it never stopped breaking. It never stopped feeding. It never stopped satisfying. It's not that you pray to him. It's that he prays for you. 
He looked to heaven. The crowd had nothing to do with it. Do you know he can give you more bread than you could ever eat? Do you know he doesn't? Because he loves you. He wants to change your heart. And all the trials and all the hungry days are for that end. And let you remember, he had hungry days for that end. He did not have to come down and feel hunger for you. He did so that you might never be hungry again. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to feel what you feel. But the phrase, he looked to heaven and he spoke a blessing. One man's body was broken and his head was put on a platter. This man broke bread and feeds a multitude. He looked to heaven, spoke a blessing, broke the bread so that he would go to the cross Put his own body, look to heaven, speak a blessing, and that body was broken for you. Broken for you. And it will satisfy the nations. Isaiah knew of it. Come, eat. There is a place to eat, which it costs no money. Come and buy bread without money. The sweetest of wine without price. Milk. Egypt, Assyria. Isaiah saw all the nations coming to be satisfied by this man who broke his bread. He gave his life like John. But his life was not like John. He put his body on a platter. But he came back. He was not a man. He restored your humanity so that you would enjoy the goodness. He could come and show you his glory and fear you to death. But he had compassion. He saw the crowd and his heart went out. He loved them. They have no idea. They're here for a riot. They're sheep without a shepherd. They, have not, they think Herod's their enemy. Yahweh is their enemy. Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. He's the one they should fear. This is our Lord. Dear Father God, dear Father God, even if this gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers, keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Dear Father, you have said let light shine out of darkness. God has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Dear Father God, we thank you that you have shown in our hearts. There is something we see in you, though we do not see you. There is something perceptible to our hearts, that you are changing our inner perception. That even though this outer body is wasting away, our inner body is being renewed day by day. That we might behold your glory. And as Moses prayed, Lord, we pray right now, Lord, we ask that you would show us your glory. Let your goodness pass before us. Let us enjoy you for you. In Jesus' mighty name, that mighty name, that Savior. Amen.